0: Wonderful, majestic world around us, it's time for Dear Science. Thanks to MoTat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Kia ora, Alan. Hey, Nicholas. Hey, Sophia. Hello. I've got to say, I was unaware of pet diabetes. So. Um, Honestly,
1: me too. Yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> wow. pet diabetes, yeah. Okay.
1: Big topics today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so we're going to talk about um, public trust in science.
1: Yes. We're going to start off
0: by talking about that. And on on a slightly related note, let's say. so i was I was in a certain CD shop the other day, um, whose name I'm probably not allowed to mention, but um, I was busy buying you know buying up the Beatles and Joni Mitchell, you know, all that good <laughs> stuff. And um, the guy said, "Oh, your voice sounds familiar. I, n- I know that voice. I know that. Fo- oh, you're the guy that does the science show on BFM. There you go. And Miss it's just, yeah. right. You get a 10% science discount because yes, <laughs> because we need people to talk about science. So if you're listening down there at Marbex, oops, uh, thank you. You're going to you're gonna have to start signing autographs now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's Alan Blackman from Dead Science.
0: <laughs> so anyway, um, there's a recent poll in the US, and apparently 27% of people in the US." have either not too much or no confidence in scientists doing the right thing by the general public or to act in the general public's best interest. Now, that's not good, obviously, is it?
1: That's an incredibly low amount.
0: It is, and it's been getting lower ever since the dreaded pandemic. For some reason, you think it would go up, wouldn't you? I mean, you yes. know, how many millions of lives were saved? But, you know, you can't tell some people things. Um so this comes, in my view, from a position of ignorance, just pure and simple, let's, let's be brutally honest. But, having said that, there are the occasional bad egg, or bad eggs in science. And um, so we're gonna talk about a very interesting case that's going on in the States at the moment. Um, and this is all to do with strokes and ischemic strokes. So, mm. um, Obviously what happens when you have a stroke, um, the blood supply to the brain uh, can get blocked by clots and stuff like that. And so it's, time is of the essence in yeah. situations like this. So you need to be treated basically you know, straight away. Um, some sort of drug that uh, gets rid of the clots, uh, stops all of these sorts of uh, nasty things happening. And so there is a drug in trials over in the states now. The way that a or any drug uh, gets approved by the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, is a long-winded process Hmm. uh, involving well, involving three phases, but even more than that. Um, So you've got to go through sort of. First phase, second phase, and then phase three. And if you get through phase three, then basically your drug can go on the market. So this is obviously all important stuff. If you are um, a drug company and you've got a prospective drug, you've got to spend an awful lot of money getting that drug to market. Yes. And then if and when that drug comes to market, then you supposedly make the money back plus a big profit. Yeah. And so there's a drug out there at the moment called 3K3A3PC, Surely
1: they could have come up with something <laughs> so much better than
0: that. That could be an interim name, and this is uh, a drug designed to treat patients immediately after they've had an ischemic stroke. Yeah. Okay. So this has been through phase one, phase two trials, and it's looking promising. So save what yeah, phase one is all about—just basic safety and stuff like that, making sure that you know it's not going to kill you when you put it in you, et cetera, et cetera. And phase two and phase three. So phase three is essentially clinical trials, and so this is now in clinical trial. So they've got around about, uh, how many was it, about 1,400, I think, uh, patients who are in this stage three trial at the moment. Okay. Now, this drug is um, backed by a company founded by a University of Southern California neurologist, neuroscientist. His name's Bereslav Zlakovic.
1: Okay. So I would trust a drug made by someone with that name. (laughs) (laughs)
0: well keep listening (laughs) so this guy is a um is a rock star in his sort of field so he's got a thing called an h index of 116 which will mean nothing to anybody unless you know what an h index is which means that you have published 116 papers that have been uh cited 116 times that's incredible so Mm. that's you know that's just nutso, and he's got 67,000 lifetime citations. So, you know, the 67,000 other papers have referenced one or more of his papers, okay? And um, so this drug's designed to reduce brain cell death and um, brain bleeds, inflammation following ischemic stroke. Yes. So as I say, phase one, phase two, all looks promising. It's in phase three trials, but a bunch of people from his lab, a bunch of whistleblowers have come on the scene and written to the National Institutes of Health saying, hang on a minute, we think there might be some nasties going on here. So they submitted a 113-page report to the National Institutes of Health, basically saying that um, the drug actually increased deaths rather than decreased deaths. So uh they had 66 people in the trial and 44 people on a placebo and of those 66 six died in the first week and the placebo one died in the first week so
1: that's That's not good
0: that's not good and then they sort of bring evidence of sort of systematic um shall we say fudging of data in the lab so uh, after experiments were completed the uh people in the lab apparently were encouraged to go back and revise their notebooks and everything so that only the good results were there, not the bad results, all of that sort of stuff. And um, so there there's 35 papers that this guy has published that they say have got some evidence of image manipulation. And that's not good. These images are used to sort of... um, Distinguished proteins and stuff like that. It's, 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 it's something that uh, all the biologists and the biochemists, etc., etc., do all the time. They're called Western blots. And sadly, they're very open to uh, being able to be digitally manipulated. And so they are reckoning that there's signs of that in a lot of his papers. And so they are calling for this uh, Phase three trial to be stopped right away um, until all of this is sorted out, okay? So this drug um, because it looked so promising in the mm. early stages, so it um, was fast tracked essentially by the NIH. So um, you know, the time that it could take to get to market was diminished. Um, he got $30 million grant oh. for this. All up, he’s had about 90 something million from the NIH, and he's got 28 million dollars elsewhere in sort of private funding and stuff like that. So, you know, obviously there’s a hell of a lot of money tied up in all of this. Um, His University USC, University of Southern California, they've come along and said, yes, we will investigate this. And he has said, yes, I will cooperate, obviously, with his investigation and everything. And, um, you know, where does the truth lie? Mm. Um, You know, on the one hand, it's very, very easy to make accusations. Um, On the other hand, um, you know, we've seen examples where whistleblowers have been telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you know, Mm. so, um, this is, yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting where it ends up. But this basically was a big story in the journal Science, yep. uh, which is one of the big science journals out there. So, if there was nothing to it, I doubt that they would have taken it this seriously mm. to publish this big, 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 big article about things. And um, so, you'd have a bit of
1: inside me- of in this than me but I guess with someone that big and a name that big how much of how much actual interaction does he have with the research or is it people doing research he must have like managers below well
0: oh yes absolutely no that's a really really good point because um yeah you know you've got a lab full of uh students PhD students postdocs research assistants etc etc and you're at the top of it all Mm. um so supposedly the buck stops with you yeah. You know, so you are meant to be managing uh, your people so that they're not gonna publish anything that's rubbish. And and that has happened before, that that people at the top of the pile have had rogue folk who have gone publishing, you know, or making up stuff or whatever and they were just sort of totally unaware of it, or at least they said they were. Yeah. But that's the thing, with with being the boss comes great responsibility. So even if you sort of say, Well, hell I wasn't aware, then you know, the the answer to that is well, you should have had better procedures in place to make sure that this sort of stuff doesn't happen so and so you can see how this sort of thing would um, sort of diminish public confidence in science, which you know is really sad. but you know science is a human endeavor, it's done by humans, it's done by people and people are <laughs> fallible, you know they just they just are, which is really, really sad but um, we'll see where this goes. We'll see whether or not the NIH decide to um, stop this trial. I would imagine pretty soon. This is this is just sort of like a week or two old, so you know, we'll see what happens.
1: I saw a faith in you so
0: you, Ellen. Yeah. Your science. Your science makes sense to me. Yeah, it's kind of uh not as not as big as this, should we say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you have up next for us, Ellen?
0: Okay, chess. Who plays chess?
1: Oh, we just had a game outside.
0: <laughs> um, and we were reading for,
1: and Sophia destroyed me.
0: Ooh. Yeah. Okay. so i might need some tips oh wow so you're a bit of a chess player (laughs) yes i'm ready for the analysis oh goodness okay oh hell (laughs) (laughs) well i mean chess is something i've always liked but i've just been bloody hopeless at so um it's just such a remarkable game you know 64 squares um you know 16 pieces each and just the ridiculous variety of um positions that you can get mm. in this and um there's lots of good youtube channels that I sort of sit and watch and and um yeah and and you know we've got this guy Magnus Carlsen who is possibly the best that there's ever been the goat um uh. uh, very yeah well you know there's Kasparov, this Fischer, um, you know who might disagree, mm-hmm. um, but really, re- and and um, obviously, there's been increased interest in chess ever since the Queen's Gambit was on, was it Netflix or something? But you know that was that was a, a pretty nice little show, and you know I don't know if you've heard about the anal beads controversy. I have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's twelve <12:16. laughs> sixteen. People are eating lunch. I know. (laughs) Well, so this guy went and beat Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, and um, you know he's sort of he wasn't a nobody, but it was very, very unexpected. So you know, apparently the thing was that he was being transmitted instructions via anal beads, apparently, this one. <laughs> I kid you not. What? So this is what happens in chess. This is this is modern-day chess.
1: Never, when I woke up this morning, I did not think that
0: would be discussing. <them>. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, on to the subject. So there's a bunch of biologists at Stanford, and they're obviously interested in chess, and what they were interested in is how do people figure out what move they're going to play next? Mm. Um, and you would think that that would be an almost impossible question to answer. Um, but what they did—they had 3.45 million games of chess <clears throat> on file from the year 1971 to 2019. So they've got a bunch of games to analyze, basically. Mm. And um, what they did was to look at openings. So probably the most important part of the chess game is is the opening. And, you know, they've been playing chess for, goodness me, uh, you know, maybe a thousand years. I think it started in Persia or there or thereabouts, I think. Um, And they've had plenty of time to basically go over all, you would think, of the possible opening moves and figure out which one is the best. And so the opening's about 10 or so moves on each side. And then, you know, what the really good players do, they have all of these memorized, so they know every possible opening basically, and they can just go boom, 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 these first 10 moves, and then they'll make a move that's not in the opening, and then they've got a completely new game. So, you know, how how do people figure out what move to play next? So they looked at three openings. So, They had a thing called the Queen's Pawn opening, and they had a thing called the Carrocan, and the Nidorf Sicilian defense, okay? Mm. So three different types of opening. And basically their analysis said, right, with this first one, this queen's pawn opening, so what players do when they're playing this particular line is more often than by chance, they tend to play unusual, strange moves sort of um, just out of nowhere that are designed to sort of uh, rattle their opponents. You know, make them, oh sheesh, why did they do that? And so this is a thing called anti-conformity bias. So not you know, so not, not playing what's expected, I guess. In this Kann opening, so the players mimic the moves associated with winning chess games more often than expected as by chance, okay, and this is this thing called success bias. And then the other bias and then Nidorf uh, Sicilian. So players copy moves that the really, really good players usually play, okay? And that is called prestige bias. Mm. So basically their hypothesis was um, you know that, that 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 people are basically uh, making moves, not by chance, but but not influenced by other things. And then they were they were looking at to see essentially what would influence players the most. And so these three biases: this prestige bias, the anti-conformity bias, and the success bias, uh, basically seem to be the most important things. And so then they're saying, well, you know, this is very possibly a result of the fact that chess has changed over the last fifty odd years. Um, in that, you know, you've got now a repository of 3.25 million games or whatever that you can access at the touch of a button. Mm. And you've also got to the point where a computer can easily beat the best chess player on the planet, and that was first done in about 1990-something, Kasparov um, against the deep blue IBM machine, I think. Um, And you've got computer analysis as well. So, you know, and... And the thing about chess, to be able to play it well, you've got to have some sort of, <laughs> not a memory, but a forethought sort of thing where you can actually see what's going to be happening 10 years ahead or whatever. And if you can do that, you're, you're laughing. I'm going to show. So... <laughs> <laughs> So um, there you go. So that's that's the big thing in chess. So, Interesting.
1: Yeah. Prestige bias. I think I definitely <laughs> fall into that um, anti-conformity bias. <laughs> involunt- involuntary, like. You know. yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why she beat you. Yeah, we were, <laughs> sitting there, we we're sitting there and I'd make a move and then she'd look up and be like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm yeah. winning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got her now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Secret plan. <clears throat> What's the last story here for us, Alan? Okay,
0: who likes getting injections? Who likes needles?
1: I would struggle to find someone who did. Yeah, I, I yeah. think
0: I think so. Yeah, I I think it's, it's sort of a universally disliked sort of thing, you mm. know, like Brussels sprouts sort of thing, you know. Just, <laughs> yeah. Um. So people really don't like needles, and you know, is there a better way of getting injections? And you know, for a while there, they were using compressed air, where they actually just blow it through the skin wow well. yeah sound, yeah that yeah good. um then i haven't heard that was sort of big about 10 years ago or something i think but i haven't sort of heard about that anymore and it still seems every time you go you know oh you'll just feel a little scratch yeah. like yeah. hell i yeah. will you know <laughs> that, if that's your idea of a scratch then, so the trouble with needles is that they are solid metal objects with a point on the end yes and um yeah, they, they hurt a lot less than they used to when you were a kid, I think. But, you know, it's still it's a, a little bit unpleasant. So how can we make it better? So there's a bunch of workers over in South Korea who have made a essentially a temperature-sensitive needle. Now, one of the problems with, or one of the reasons why it feels so nasty is that the needle is basically inflexible. You know, it's sort yeah. of stainless steel or something like that. So it doesn't sort of bend, uh, conform to your natural contours. And... What it can do is it can sort of, uh, you know, once it's inside, it can bugger up your veins and stuff like that. If you point it the wrong way, it can go oh. through, the, you know, all, all that sort of stuff that can happen. So what they've done is they've made a um, needle out of uh, a metal called gallium. Now, gallium is a metal... It's a solid at room temperature, but if you hold it in your hand, it melts. It's really cool. Incredible. So you make a teaspoon out of it, you put the teaspoon in your tea, and then it disappears. You know, It's a trick. Oh. Incredible. The disappearing teaspoon. Um, so they've made a needle out of an alloy of gallium and other metals. So not that it melts, but it softens when it's inside. So you're at 37 degrees, your blood temperature, your body temperature, or whatever, you put it in, it's at 37 degrees, and it goes soft. That's okay, incredible. and so therefore, it's not so uncomfortable when uh, you're poking around in there, and you're putting it in the vein and stuff like that. And then, when you pull it back out, it stays soft, and so you don't get accidental pricking, or as they call it, needle stick. Ooh. Okay, because that's you know you pull it out, yeah. oh you know, and then you you poke yourself or whatever, and that's that's not good. So um, this seems to be uh, like it's going to be. A big thing I would That's say. Awesome. Apparently there's 16 billion injections a year wow. in humanity which is quite a lot um, and so if you can make those 16 billion a little bit less uncomfortable then obviously I think you're on to a winner so um, we'll see how this ends up but uh-huh. you know this is, this is a, a good example of good solid practical sort of scientific yeah. endeavour uh-huh. so very cool.
1: There's only really one thing to say. Thank you, science, for that. (laughs) Thank you, Alan. Thank you, MoTat. Thank you, Science. Yeah.
0: Well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.